Well, please turn with me uh, back to the passage that Alan has read, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd like to just read again one verse, which is verse 20. Alan prayed, I hope you heard and I hope you said a loud amen to his prayer, especially for courage and boldness as Christians in the year ahead. And there are some verses in the Bible that I think if they don't encourage us and embolden us as Christians, then I don't know what will, and this is one of them. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Well, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a time when there are few, relatively, who give Christianity any thought at all. And there are even fewer who have an understanding of what the Christian message is. If you read back in the history of our country and you realise how widespread the Christian message has been in the past, it's shocking, it's horrifying to realise that we live in times of such considerable ignorance about the Christian message. And when people do, if they ever do give a thought to Christianity... So, so many people, tragically so many people, are going to see it as nothing more than a complete irrelevance, uh, something pointless, uh, something even pitiable, to borrow a word that Paul uses later in this chapter. Uh, And there are those in this country, in this day and age, and some influential voices as well, who actually regard Christianity as dangerous and something that really should be consigned to the history books. Well, maybe that wouldn't surprise you, but would it surprise you if I then say, and they would be right. And indeed, anybody who's ever thought like that about the Christian message all the way back to the days of the Apostle Paul would be quite right in thinking about the Christian message like that, but for one stubborn Fact, and it's there in our verse. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Just eight words. Actually, it only took Paul six in Greek when he wrote the letter originally. Just eight words, though, in our Bibles that change everything around which the whole history of this world hinges that says to us that because of this fact, that Christ is risen from the dead, that in fact Christianity is not irrelevant but supremely relevant to every person who lives on this planet in the 21st century, to every person who has ever lived and will ever live. It's not something pointless but something precious beyond words of a value that cannot be calculated. It's not something pitiable to be a Christian. It's something quite remarkable. It's the most wonderful thing that can happen to any human being. Christianity and the gospel message is not something dangerous, but it's something full of life and wonderful things. Those who see it as irrelevant and pointless and even dangerous and pitiable to be a Christian are people who 
are unaware of this stubborn fact and they need to be made aware that Jesus Christ is risen and he lives now. In fact, it's the view that says Christianity is irrelevant and even pitiable or even dangerous that itself is pitiable and dangerous because it's a danger to people's souls and not just for this life but forever because this world isn't all that there is. Well, my text this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 is one of those memorable, pithy statements that the Bible makes that should fill our hearts with joy, with courage and with boldness as we embark upon whatever 2024 is going to bring for us individually, as families, as a church. Remember these words, brothers and sisters, but now Christ is risen from the dead. I want to encourage you with those words and lead up towards an exhortation at the end, which will come in the words of Paul at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where he says in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why not? Because Christ is risen. Why should you be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because Christ is risen from the dead. I want to think about two things in the light of 1 Corinthians 15, 20. First of all, the crucial importance of the resurrection and then secondly, the momentous implications of the resurrection. You're thinking to yourselves, aren't you? I thought it was New Year, not Easter. But this is a message for every day, isn't it? But now, today, Christ is risen, and tomorrow, Christ is risen, and the next day, Christ is risen, and for as long as this world remains, and forevermore, Christ is risen. Let it encourage you, and embolden you, and fill you with joy and excitement at what it means to be a Christian. The crucial importance of the resurrection. Strange as it may seem, in the Corinthian church in Paul's day, there were resurrection deniers, or at least partial deniers of resurrection. We don't exactly know what it was that they believed, but we know enough from what Paul says uh, to know that this was a serious issue. It says in verse 12 of our chapter, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you, not how do some out there, but how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. So there's some sort of resurrection denying going on in Corinth. Most likely, it's people who've been under the influence of old Greek philosophical thinking, which exalted the idea of the spiritual and the immaterial and tended to think of the physical and the solid and the here and now as something at best secondary and at worst something bad and evil. Maybe a bit of thinking like that was still infecting the the church. We're not told in detail exactly what they thought because they'd heard the gospel that Christ is raised from the dead. They believed that. They're in the church among the Christians. So what it exactly was they were thinking, we're not sure. But it was enough that Paul needed to address this issue in this lengthy letter dealing with various issues in the Corinthian church and saying to them, 
look, how is it that some of you are saying there's no resurrection of the dead? Maybe they thought that being born again spiritually was all it was for a Christian and that the idea of physical resurrection was something that you didn't need to believe. We're not sure. But how thankful we should be for the way that Paul deals with this question that was in that church then. Because the fact that there were these resurrection deniers in the church and Paul coming to know of that and needing to address it and writing to them in this letter of 16 chapters deals with it, the whole idea of resurrection, and gives to us the longest section in the whole Bible on resurrection. And it's a wonderful chapter. I nearly asked if we could have all of it read, but it's a bit long for a a Sunday evening and a lot to take in. But maybe you'd like to read all of it later on or in the week. The longest section in the Bible on the resurrection. And what a fitting end to this letter. Chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has to talk to them about the crucifixion. And he says about how to the Greeks the idea of crucifixion seems foolish. And now at the end of the letter, as he gets to the final parts of his teaching, he talks about the resurrection of Christ. And it seems that there were some who thought that that was a foolish idea, that there was resurrection. Well, we've got this long chapter then that deals with these hugely important subjects, matters to do with the last things, how everything's going to finish, where the world is heading, where the Christian church is heading, what's coming next at the end of all history. He talks about the death of death and he's talking about the eternal life that is to come and something of what that life will look like for God's people. Resurrection and a new creation being made new. And we finished the reading at verse 28, which really is the, the summary of it all that he's talking about. And in fact, is the summary of everything that the Bible wants us to know, that in the end, God may be all in all. Because the whole of history is about this, God bringing glory to himself. Of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory. And our part in that wonderfully is a saved people on a journey to being with the Lord in this resurrection life which is to come is to the glory of God that God may be all in all. But more of that in a bit. This chapter then is talking about God's ultimate intentions, things that are coming. And somebody may say, well, if they're coming, we can relegate them perhaps and not think too much about them. There's mysteries about what's coming for us. There's things that we can't fully grasp now. So let's not think too much about it. On the contrary, would say Paul and others in the Bible, you need to think a lot about the things that are coming. The things that are coming, God's ultimate intentions, the future, speaks profoundly to us in the present to encourage us in our faith, to encourage us to live as Christian people should live, knowing that we're on this journey and that we have lives filled with hope, knowing what the Lord is doing, knowing the the end of all things, knowing what's coming, is a tremendous spur to us. You know, when you're making a journey, a long journey by car or train or whatever, the the thought of what's at the end of that journey, maybe going to visit family or friends or going on holiday, is a spur to keep going on the, the miles of the motorway and all the traffic. Knowing what's coming is important. But Paul is speaking particularly then about the, the resurrection. 
the fact that the dead will rise. And he says that there are some in Corinth who are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. But why does it matter whether there is a resurrection of the dead or not? There's a a logic, a spiritual logic to what Paul has in these verses, which is weighty and powerful and brings tremendous light on God's purposes and God's plans and is tremendously encouraging for us. We're going to look briefly at his spiritual logic in verses 12 to 18, having raised this question of the fact that there there are people denying that there's a resurrection. And Paul says to them, think about this now. Let's think about this. Let's think about the implications. What if you were right? What if there is no resurrection of the dead? Let's think about what that would mean. And he, look at, with me then at verse 12. He says, If there is no resurrection, let's think together then. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. No resurrection of the dead? Well, Jesus rose from the dead. If there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul is saying, then Christ is not risen. That's the key. So it's not, He doesn't just focus on the idea of resurrection in general, but he says, look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Now follow his reasoning about what he goes on to say. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Those of you who like computer programming and remember the old ways of typing in words onto screens and you might know of things called if and then statements. If this is true, then that will follow on. It's a way of thinking. If if this is true, then that. If this is true, then that. Cause and effect. And that's what Paul is doing right here. All right, if there is no resurrection of the dead, he says, then Christ is not risen. Think about what that would mean then. Verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. Here are the consequences that follow. Christ is not risen, well, then the gospel message is empty, false, pointless. And Paul has said at the beginning of the chapter, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached. There's the word again, preaching, preached. Unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. He died, he was buried, he rose again, resurrection, the third day. And Paul says, we preach this to you. So if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen, then what we preach to you, that message was false, it was empty, it was pointless. Well then what? Carry on from verse 13. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen, If Christ is not risen, our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. That's a very serious thing, isn't it? Ninth commandment, you shall not bear false testimony or false witness. 
And Paul is saying, look, we preached to you that Christ was raised from the dead. The scriptures say to you, Christ would be raised from the dead. The New Testament speaks to us that says Christ was raised from the dead. Well, if the dead don't rise, then Christ is not risen. That message is false and the messengers are false witnesses. Not just false witnesses generally, but false witnesses of God. Saying that they're speaking on behalf of God and telling things that aren't true. This is serious stuff, Paul is saying. Serious stuff, false witnesses about God, false witnesses bearing a false message. And so, if that's the case, if the message is empty, if the messengers are false, he says to them, well then, your faith, verse 14, is also empty. And he says it again in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. What's the Christian faith all about? It's about believing what the word of God says about believing what God has said in his word. And Paul is saying, well, if Christ isn't risen, then the word isn't right, it's empty, it's false. So your faith is falsely grounded, it stands on nothing, it has nothing to put underneath it, it's a fiction, it's pointless, it's empty. Well, then he says, if that's the case, what follows on from that? If, verse 17, if Christ is not risen... Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. You're not saved. Remember in verse 2, he talked about the gospel by which also you are saved. My friends, if Christ is not risen, then the Christian message is false. Christian ministry is futile. Christian faith is groundless. Salvation is a complete fiction. We are not saved. We're still he says in verse 17, in our sins. And he still hasn't finished. Not only would faith be groundless and salvation a fiction, but our hope is false. He says in verse 18, if you're still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If there's no resurrection, we're not saved. To die is to die, to perish. That's it. And he goes on to say then, that if that's the case, if death means perishing, verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. If Christ is not resurrected from the dead, if Christ is not alive, then Christians are of all men, Paul says, the most pitiable. And you'd have to say he's right, wouldn't you? You know, just turn over into chapter 15 and verse 29. He says... Um, what will they do who are baptised for the dead? Don't worry about that too much right now. If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptised for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting... Uh, sorry, I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul's saying, look, why would I bother suffering for preaching this gospel if it's not true, if Christ hasn't risen, from, been raised from the dead? Why, why would I bother going through all of that? What's the point? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. This is why the resurrection matters. It's crucially important. I don't mind saying to you that I would be wasting every 
word and every breath right now if Christ is not risen from the dead. And you might as well not be here. We would be, of all men, the most pitiable. I don't think we should be surprised that the idea of resurrection is something that's always been attacked through the the thousands of years since Paul wrote these words. I don't think we should be surprised it happened in New Testament times that people tried to undermine the idea of the resurrection. It's happened through the centuries since and it still happens today. There's a tendency, isn't there, to, uh, to downplay the miraculous and the supernatural and the spiritual. You think about the history of the church and how... Uh, the incarnation of Christ that we've so recently celebrated and enjoyed thinking about the virgin birth of God becoming man and dwelling among us, how that's been attacked. We think about how the, the idea that Jesus really died has been attacked. You know, there are those who have said, well, if he was seen alive after the crucifixion, it means he can't have died on the cross. Every part of the, the, the work of Christ, his coming, his life, his death, his resurrection, has come under attack through enemies of the gospel. Paul, the Bible, crystal clear on this truth and what should be our focus. Verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is like the the heart of the gospel, isn't it? The person of Jesus Christ, who he is, God who became man. And what he did, God became man. He took flesh and he lived sinlessly on this earth. And he went to the cross and died to pay the price for the sins of others, for his chosen people. And that he truly died upon that cross. And that he was buried and on the third day he rose again, the conqueror of sin and death. This is the heart of the gospel And without these things, there is no gospel at all. There's no wonder that this has been under attack, criticised, laughed at, mocked, denied, all through the centuries and still is today. Bible, Paul, crystal clear. And we should learn from this. Focus of our faith, of our lives, of what we say and do as the Lord's people. Jesus Christ. And all that the Bible reveals of him. God who became man, who lived and died and was raised and is living now and reigning over all things and will do forever. Christ is the heart. Christ is everything. You know, there's a a tragedy that has been affecting churches for a long time. Of turning their focus to other things in the quest for relevance, in the quest, quest for a voice, in wanting to be heard, in trying to be popular in wanting to seem authentic in the modern world, whatever the modern world was at different stages through history, of speaking of things other than Christ crucified, buried and raised and reigning, in the quest for relevance and the quest for a voice. And it's happening right now in our own generation, isn't it? 
people who claim to be ministers of the Christian message, not talking about Christ, denying the resurrection, denying the reality of it, denying the heart of the gospel, not understanding that in wanting to be heard in this modern fallen world, in wanting to sound relevant by not speaking of Christ and the pure gospel that Paul has here for us in 1 Corinthians 15, rather than being relevant to the world, they're being supremely irrelevant. The world won't listen to the church that doesn't speak about Christ. That's just the church sounding like the world. And we're always at least two steps behind the world when we try and sound like the world. They won't listen. The supremely relevant message is the authentic message of Christ, crucified, buried, raised, reigning, calling people to believe and to trust in him to be saved from their sins. It's a tragedy when churches lose that focus. They soon lose their voice and they'll empty their pews. Well, Paul says, now Christ is risen. The beginning of the chapter, he says, yes, it was promised according to the scriptures. It happened. He was raised from the dead on the third day and it was witnessed. We have no need to have doubts about this. It was witnessed. He was seen, he says, by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Don't you wish that somebody had written a bit more about some of these occasions in the Bible for us? But it's enough for us to know that this happened. 500 of them at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. Why would he say that? Go and ask them. They saw it with their own eyes. After that, he was uh, seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Christ is risen, promised, seen, witnessed, spoken of by those who saw him and those who heard him in that time between his resurrection and his ascension. This is the stubborn fact of the, of the resurrection of Christ. This fact that will not go away. This fact on which everything hangs, which, on which everything hinges. The historical event, the confirming point that Jesus really is the Son of God who became Son of Man. That Jesus really is the Saviour of sinners. That exactly as the Scriptures spoke, so it happened and so he is. Paul tells the Romans at the beginning of, of Romans chapter 1 that um, Christ has been um, declared to be the Son of God with power by the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection, because of being raised from the dead. This is the confirming fact, the confirming evidence written for us here in the pages. He's no charlatan, he's no huckster, he's no trickster, he's the Son of God who really did live and die and has conquered death. Some of you may have heard of a, a book written by a, a, um, a man, it was a, a pseudonym, the name that he used for this book, Frank Morrison, who wrote a book about 100 years ago, Who Moved the Stone? Um, it's a lovely title, isn't it? Doesn't it make you want to read it? Who Moved the Stone? 
stone from the, the grave where Jesus was buried. Frank Morrison was somebody who set out, he thought, to disprove the, the fact of the resurrection and to prove that it was in fact a myth. And Who Moved the Stone is his story of investigating the gospel accounts and thinking through uh, what happened and trying to find alternative explanations and in the end being persuaded, Christ is risen. Maybe you've heard of uh, more recently somebody called Lee Strobel who wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And again, somebody who was affected deeply by the, the weight of evidence, by this fact, Christ is risen. Well, I'm saying to you that Paul is drawing our attention to the crucial importance of the resurrection. And he does it in a negative way. And you feel a bit hammered down, don't you, by that relentless logic that he uses that basically says, if Christ is not risen, then open the doors, go home, switch off the lights, and don't bother meeting as a church again, because it's all empty. But that's not what he says, is it? Look at our text. It's one of those wonderful buts again, one of those wonderful buts of God, but... But now Christ is risen from the dead. So let's flip things. We're going to think secondly about the momentous implications of the resurrection and that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Let's just flip Paul's logic. Let's take what he's so negative in what he says in verses 12 to 18 about the fact if Christ is not risen. Let's take the reality that Christ is risen and see the momentous implications. And please, take these to heart. Let them encourage you. Let them embolden you, as Alan has prayed. Let God's word be the means by which Alan's prayer for us as a church and individuals is answered in all of our lives, not just now, but today and all through the the coming year and for as long as God keeps us on this earth. Because I think 1 Corinthians 15, 20 is one of those verses that really we should think about every day for as long as we're here until the time when we see the risen Christ. So here are some implications, momentous implications. Three are general, three are personal, and then there'll be one closing exhortation to you. Three general implications. But now Christ is risen from the dead. First of all then, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and factual. It happened. Full stop. Christ died, was buried, rose. He's alive. It happened. No debate. No need for wondering, is it really the case? No need for doubts. No need for questions. Take the word of God to mind and heart and plant yourself firmly on it and in it. Jesus Christ is risen. The gospel is true. That was what Paul preached. That's what the others preached. That was what the Lord told them to preach. That was what they were commissioned to make known. It's what has been uh, the, the message of the true church ever since. The opening verses... That gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures 
and that he was seen and so on. That gospel is true. It's factual. It happened. I've been trying to think of a way of putting it. It's like the resurrection teaching of the Bible is is the sort of capstone upon everything that's contained within the Bible. It confirms it all. It holds it all together. It hinges all around this idea of who Jesus is and what he has done and the resurrection confirms everything. Christ is the, the heart and the focus of the Bible. His resurrection from the dead confirms everything that he said, everything that's spoken about him, everything that he did. It's true. It happened. It's factual. It's real. The whole Bible stands or falls here, doesn't it? Isn't that what Paul's saying? It all stands or falls here. My friends, it stands. The whole of the Bible stands because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I read yesterday in the news that I I, I didn't get into the details of this because I thought it's going to make me go a bit nuts, but I read that there are some forms now in the NHS that you have to fill in asking all sorts of questions about who you are and and so on, including what you believe, and apparently there are 159 different religions that you can choose from on this form. 159. I didn't see the form, I'm only reading a report about it, but no reason to doubt the report. Can you imagine that? I hope Christianity was one of the 159, but do you know there's only one question really that matters? Are you a Christian or not? Don't worry about the other 158. They're all false. They can't be true because they deny Christ in some way or another. There's only one true religion, and that's what's found here. The Bible stands or falls here, and every other religion is excluded by this fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. First implication then, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true and factual. Second, that gospel ministry is meaningful. Making known the message of the Bible, making known the gospel of Jesus, telling people about Jesus, who he is and what he's done, speaking about the cross, speaking about the resurrection, speaking about his reign in heaven now, speaking about the power and powerful work of the Holy Spirit, telling people that, yes, you are a sinner in the sight of God, but Jesus is the Saviour, and if you trust in him as your Saviour, you will be saved. That is meaningful, relevant, and authentic to life. Forget what the world may say. That's what people need to hear. Sinners are bound to think that the gospel is irrelevant because they're blind to it. They're deceived. By the grace of God, if your eyes have been opened, your heart changed, you know that you were once like that, but you're not anymore. And you know that same powerful gospel can change others too. Gospel ministry is meaningful. The sermons preached on Sundays or Bible studies... Help me out here. Monday, youth discipleship group. Tuesday, coffee morning. Tuesday evening, Bible study. Wednesday, babies and toddlers. Even the little ones need to hear. Wednesday afternoon, Kids Connect. I was listening carefully to the notices, Anne. (laughs) Thursday, day off. Is that right? Friday. Youth, no, what is it, Friday? Help me. 
Rooted, thank you. Saturday, Gospel Partnership Meeting, Open Airs. Anything else on this Saturday? The Theology Group, thank you. Next Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, Children's Groups. If you're involved in those, what you're doing is meaningful. Because you've got a responsibility and a privilege to tell people about Jesus. And that's the message that saves souls. Now I've just listed off all of those different things that are happening this week in this one church. Think about everything else that's going on in God's kingdom in the world. It's meaningful, come what the world may say. Now let's turn it around, not just think about those who are speaking at those, but those who are attending. Children, young people, going to your groups in the week. You're hearing about Jesus who is alive and who's raised from the dead, who's the saviour of sinners. And God is saying to you, you can believe in Jesus even if you're very young and he will save you. What about coffee morning? I think it tends to be the other end of the age spectrum attending at coffee morning, doesn't it? It doesn't matter whether we're young or old. If we're not saved, we need to be saved. Do encourage people to come and hear God's word. But there are all the various groups and opportunities. And for Christians, being saved isn't the end of the story, is it? Don't we constantly need to be hearing about the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and all that that entails and everything else that this wonderful book has got to say to us that we know is true and factual and meaningful because Christ is risen? Gospel ministry is meaningful. Those conversations that you might have with an unbeliever, the tract that you may give out, the opportunity you have to speak to somebody, it's meaningful. God's word will not return to him empty. It will accomplish what he's purposed for it. Are you confident in that? Three general implications. The gospel is true and factual. Gospel ministry is meaningful. Gospel messengers are true witnesses of God. Remember Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then we are false witnesses of God. But Christ is risen. When you have a responsibility, whether it's to talk simply with one person, or whether it's to speak to a group, whatever it may be, if you have the opportunity and responsibility to speak to people about Jesus, know this and be confident in this, that you have got the truth. It's not that it's about your opinion. If you tell people about Jesus from the Bible, you're standing on the truth and you're making known the living and powerful word of God. Be confident in it. It doesn't mean you have a, a sort of arrogance or a confidence in self. I'm saying be confident in the word. God can use even our halting, faulty tongues to make his truth known. And who knows what he'll accomplish through it. Gospel messengers are true witnesses with a message of life, a message of salvation. Please be encouraged in your service of the Lord, however it may be, individually, in that one-to-one -one opportunity that you may have, or whether it's speaking to a few or to many, whatever it may be, be confident. Christ is risen. You're speaking about the truth. You're speaking a life-changing message. 
you're speaking about God for God and who knows what the Lord may do with your words. Three personal implications then. Christ is risen. You can be sure that your faith rests on solid ground. All of the promises of God, Paul says at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. All of it, everything, the whole lot, all the promises, not some of the promises, all of them, without any equivocation, without any changing of his mind, without any giving with one hand and taking with another. All of the promises of God have their yes and their amen in Christ. What he says, he will do. What he promises, he will accomplish. He won't hold back. Your faith rests on solid ground because Christ is risen. You need look nowhere else and to no one else than to Jesus. Trust him in this coming year. Your salvation, therefore, is genuine, isn't it? God has said, in answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? What has he said? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And you know that's true because Christ is risen. He's conquered sin and death. Your salvation is genuine. Your sins are forgiven. You are no longer, as he put it, in your sins. But you're saved from your sins. What does that mean? Well, it means you've been put into a right standing with God. You've been justified. He declares you righteous because of Christ. You've been forgiven your sins. You've been adopted as a child of God. He is your father. You've been united spiritually to God by the Holy Spirit in Christ. You've been born again. You've been made new. You're a new creation, heart and soul and mind and one day body as well. You are being sanctified. You will be glorified. Mount them all up. All of the promises, all of the things that God has said, yes, they are true. They are real. Your salvation is genuine. Your faith rests on solid ground. Your salvation is genuine. It's the real thing. It's not some fiction. It's not some piece of imagination. It's not some psychological crutch that people have invented to help them hobble through this life until they die. It's the real thing. Not just for this life, but forevermore. And the third then, personal implication, if your faith rests on solid ground in Christ, if your salvation is genuine, then your hope is real and it's not just for this life only. Remember Paul said, if it's in this life only that we have hope, we are of all men the most pitiable, well we don't have hope just for this life. We've got hope for this life and forevermore. Read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 at your leisure and read a little of what's coming of that resurrection and the new bodies that we will be given suitable to dwell with the Lord forever and ever. The key to this, it's in verse 22. He says, um, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Our verse Verse 20 says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, the first cuttings of the harvest, as it were, that promise that the rest of the harvest is definitely coming. Well, Christ is risen. The rest of the harvest is definitely coming. In Christ, we're not going to perish when we die, but we're going to live 
like we've never lived before when we die, forever and forever. What a mockery a Christian funeral would be if Christ is not risen. But what a glorious thing it is to be reminded when a a brother or a sister in Christ departs this world that they have gone to be with the Lord. And what a wonderful hope is held out to all of us that one day all of us who are in Christ will be with the Lord. That resurrection is coming for us all. Penny and I were at a funeral a few weeks ago in Suffolk of a member of the the church where I used to be a pastor and uh, he was buried in the burial ground of of the the chapel uh, where we had worshipped together for many years. And I don't mind telling you this, but we've got plots reserved there. And I thought to myself while we were there, do you know, I'd like to rise on that last day with these people here. There's brothers and sisters and beloved Christian friends who are buried there now and in the providence of God, who knows how many more will be in the future. What a glorious day is coming when the dead shall rise to go to be with the Lord, the dead in Christ. Please make sure you are in Christ, believing in him for when that day comes. Trust him. It's all true. The gospel is true. You don't need to have any doubts about it. Trust him. Believe in Jesus. Be saved. And then live with hope. Oh, what a wonderful thing it is to have hope, isn't it? To know that you've got hope. To know that there's a life coming. My friends, this is the gospel. This is what Paul preached. This is the true gospel There's nothing to pity here, nothing at all. Paul said in Romans chapter 1 that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation. And he meant, I'm really proud of it, I love it. The gospel is a wonderful thing. Please think about Christ risen from the dead. Think about all of the promises that come to us. Think about the wonderful love and grace of God. Think about all that he has done for you, is doing and will do for you. And feel a sense of pride in the gospel. Feel a sense of the wonderful things that Christ has done for you, of who Christ is. Let the resurrection be constantly in your thoughts. Memorize those eight words, but now Christ is risen from the dead. And then let the encouragement of those words bring to you a real sense of vigor and power and enthusiasm and courage and boldness. And take to heart this exhortation that Paul gives to us at the end of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your labour is not in vain in the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going-